0: ...to find surprising things put together, sometimes right next to each other. This morning we heard, Jesus is a victorious warrior, the snake crusher, but he's also like a hen, sheltering chicks under her wing. Amazing things that the Bible puts together. And tonight we're in a chapter of the Bible that has a verse to make us celebrate, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, And a verse to make us gulp. Two people have been handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What are they doing in the same passage, next to each other almost? Well, let's get into 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 20 to see. Now, we heard two weeks ago that Timothy is in Ephesus. And he's at a church that's had a wonderful start and seen God's power and grace amazingly, but has also had a warning people who distort the truth, would come and cause trouble. And by the time of 1 Timothy, they've come and they've caused trouble. And Timothy has to sort it out. And so 1 Timothy is mainly about guarding the church and providing for its future. We saw that last time in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 11. Today we're on to verses 12 to 20, but I want to first of all show you how they link together. And I'm hoping something, I overused the screen this morning, it's just going to be once this evening. There's something coming up. Seth put this together for me so I, didn't, I haven't seen it before now, although I devised it on a scrap of paper. He's the computer man who put it on computer. So in verses 1 to 11 we have Paul's role, very briefly in verse 1, appointed by God. Because of that... There's Timothy's role in verse 2, he's Paul's successor, appointed by God. Because of that, verses 3 to 10, there is what Timothy must do. And the focus in those verses is on stopping false teaching. And then very briefly we get, why? Because of the gospel that shows God's glory. Now, I suppose that Seth didn't manage quite to fit. It's supposed to be verse 11 is very small, because it is very small. And verse 1 and 2 are very small, and nearly all of it is verses 3 to 10. But probably that's hard to do. But we've got basically the same thing in verses 12 to 20. We've got Paul's role, and he describes it being because of the Gospel. And he almost uses, talking about his role, as an excuse to expand on the gospel. And from that, because of Paul's role, because of the gospel, we have Timothy's role. Verse 18, he's handing on to Timothy. And then verse 18 to 20, we have what Timothy must do. Now, can you see how all the stuff in the top row is in the bottom row? But the proportions have changed. In the top row, most of it was what Timothy must do. With a very little, is because of the gospel. But in this bottom row, most of it is about the gospel. In other words, it's the same content, but the emphasis has shifted onto the motivation for it. The, em- the emphasis has shifted onto, Timothy, your motive is this gospel of God's glory. By the way, you can see the parallel very clearly if you compare verse 11 and verse 17. Verse 11, he's described the gospel and he says it's the gospel of God's glory. It's the gospel that shows God's glory. Verse 17, Paul's described the gospel and then he bursts into, it's all about God's glory. So I hope you can see how the chapter works, saying almost the same thing twice, but shifting the emphasis. And we can do away with that now, thank you. And so tonight we're in verses 12 to 20, and it's about being motivated by the gospel to do what Timothy had to do. And what was it Timothy had to do? It's in verse 18. He had to fight the good fight. So putting that all together, what's this evening about? It's about motivating us with the gospel to fight the good fight. That's the aim of this evening. We should be motivated with the gospel to fight the good fight. So that gives us two halves of this evening. First of all, let's get motivated with the gospel. And then secondly, let's check we know what this fighting the good fight is. So, first of all, verses 12 to 17, be motivated by the gospel. Now, two years ago, some probably here will remember, a man called Khalid Shah came and spoke here at this church on a Thursday evening about gospel work on the borders of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the thing that sticks in my mind from that evening was him telling us about violent Taliban men who'd been converted to Christ. That sticks in my mind because hearing about God working in such a way is an encouragement, isn't it? And it strengthens our faith. But possibly no testimony is more remarkable and more encouraging and faith-strengthening than the Apostle Paul's. And here we have it in verses 12 to 17. It's effectively his testimony. Okay, it's not giving the details of the circumstances. It's explaining behind the scenes. Now, I knew a young man who was converted while he was in prison for drug dealing. And then someone else I knew went to a youth event where this chap who'd been converted while in prison for drug dealing gave his testimony. And it turned out that he never mentioned prison or drug dealing. You might think that's really strange, but I thought that was pretty impressive. Because can you imagine if you were converted in prison for drug dealing, you could really sensationalise yourself. But that young man, he put the emphasis not on sensationalising himself, but on God's work. And we find similar here as we get into verse 12. What does Paul start with? Verse 12, as he tells his story. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He is full of thankfulness because it's all about Jesus. And what Jesus has done for him. What are our accounts of conversion often like? I was, and then we describe our life. I heard, and then we describe how we heard the gospel. I thought, and then we describe how we responded to it. I believed, and I prayed, and that could be completely accurate, and it could be a quite fine way of giving your testimony. But Paul looks behind the experience, and he only says I once in verse 12, and that's simply to say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, because he did it. I thank the one who did it all. Verse 12, he has given me strength. He considered me faithful. He appointed me to service. He did it. That's the emphasis here. I'm thanking Jesus because he took hold of me. By the way, when he says, he considered me faithful, it would be totally contradictory to what's coming and all of Paul's writings to think Jesus considered, oh look at this Saul of Tarsus, here's a great faithful chap, I'll have him. No, it must be Jesus considered, here's one I can make faithful, here's one I can see how I can use in my service when I've changed his heart. Paul puts he starts with the emphasis in the right place it's all about Jesus now he does talk about himself in the next verse but it's to highlight the work of Jesus verse 13 even though i was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man this jesus who worked in paul he once used to blaspheme he hated and he would speak against him. He would denigrate him. In fact, he even says in Acts 29, I tried to force his followers to blaspheme him. And he was—he persecuted them. Even to the point of approving of Stephen being stoned. Do you remember the account of Stephen being stoned to death And Saul of Tarsus, now called Paul, he sounds such a nasty piece of work, doesn't he? He won't get his own hands dirty. He'll hold their coats for them while they do the dirty work and he approves. It's like the drug dealer who, or the mafia boss who pays someone else to give the beating, but he's organised it. What a nasty piece of work. And so he uses this word in verse 13, A violent man. It's a horrible word for an arrogant man who finds satisfaction in humiliating and insulting others. Horrible word for a horrible person. Now, if you listened carefully, I said that Paul blasphemed and Paul persecuted. But that isn't quite what he says in verse 13. He puts it differently. Can you see the difference? I said Paul blasphemed Jesus. I said Paul persecuted Christians. But it isn't quite how he puts it. Can you see the difference in verse 13? You might think there's no difference, but there is a slight difference. Well, yes, I once was. He doesn't say I persecuted. He says I was a persecutor. He doesn't say, I blasphemed. He says, I was a blasphemer. Can you see a difference? The difference is, it isn't just something I happen to do. It's what I was. A man came to see me, who didn't know the gospel, and he wasn't from a Christian background, but he gave me a great encouragement, and it will sound like a very odd encouragement. But he said this, he committed adultery, and he said, I realised I'd done a terrible thing. Then he said, I'd realised actually I'd done many terrible things. And then he said, then I realised it wasn't just I'd done many terrible things, there's something wrong with me. Do you get why I was encouraged there? He'd really got actually who he was. It wasn't just this one thing he'd done, it wasn't in fact even many things he'd done, it's something about him. And that's what Paul says here. This is who I was. It wasn't just an occasional slip. It wasn't just an occasional activity. It wasn't even just a frequent activity. It's who I was. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and a nasty, violent man. And then does Paul say, actually, not quite so bad. Have a look at verse 13 and see. Does he say, actually, not quite so bad? It might look like it. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Is he saying, well, actually not quite so bad because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I've got a bit of an excuse. No, he's not saying that. Ignorance is no excuse for throwing Christians in prison and approving of rocks smashing into Stephen's skull. He wasn't ignorant of whether that's right or wrong. Ignorance is no excuse. Unbelief is a sin itself. It doesn't lessen his sin, it increases his sin. Paul here is not excusing himself and saying, well, I wasn't quite the worst really. He's going to say he was the worst twice in the next two verses. No, what he's saying is, I was the worst, but there is hope for ignorant unbelievers. You see, it seems to me that some of the Pharisees, remember Paul was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, and some of the religious leaders, at the time of Jesus, they knew he was the Messiah. And they believed his words were true. But they said, let's get rid of him, because we want to keep control. Their problem wasn't unbelief and ignorance. Their problem was, they believed it, and they knew it, and they said, we won't have him. Paul isn't excusing himself by saying, I was ignorant and unbelieving. He says he's the worst of sinners, but he wasn't an unforgivable sinner who'd rejected one he knew was true and knew was good but said that I don't want him. So Paul is a blasphemer, a persecutor, a nasty violent man and an ignorant unbeliever. It's not an excuse. It actually worsens the situation in terms of guilt, but it gives hope that he's an ignorant unbeliever. And what does God do to him? Verse 13, he shows him mercy. And again in verse 16, I was shown mercy. And he doesn't just show him a little glimpse of mercy from a distance. Here you go, have a little look at mercy. Okay, now take it away. No. God comes to him with mercy and embraces him with pity and kindness and tenderness. And then he pours grace out on him. Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. The word here, poured out, is a word for overflowing. It's a word like a river when there's been heavy rain and it bursts its banks And that can do a lot of destruction, but here it doesn't do destruction, it brings goods. God is so full of generous, loving others' goods that he's like this river that bursts its banks with goodness, with grace, with favour, poured out of him to this pool. I'm told that when the Nile overflows, it causes life, vegetation to spring up all around it. In fact, sometime look up on Google Earth, the River Nile, it's quite interesting if you start out, um, or you start out a long way off, and you can just see desert and this green stripe, and you're getting closer, and the green stripe's all around the River Nile, because it bursts its banks and brings life to all around it. And it's as if God here bursts his banks, he's so overflowing with grace, and it overflows to Paul, and what does it cause to spring up? Have a look at verse 14. God bursts his banks with grace, like the River Nile, and what springs up? Faith, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What was Paul's heart full of before, according to verse 13? Unbelief. But the grace of God comes to him and fills that heart with faith. What was Paul's heart full of before, according to verse 13? Hatred. What a hater he was. God's grace comes to him and now that heart fills up with love. Now, in our experience, we believe and then we discover God's grace. That's what it feels like to us, doesn't it? We believe and then we discover God's grace. But actually, when we look back, we may see, in our hearts unknown to us, God's grace had already been at work. Paul's hard, cold heart would never believe had not God's grace already got to work softening his heart, opening his eyes. I actually, when we sang, and can it be, I didn't choose it for this reason, but did you notice verse 4? we were like a person in prison, chained, dead, and then what did it say? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's a bit old-fashioned language, isn't it? It's, it's you sent life. That's what quickening means, life-giving. And you brought me to life. And that's when I awoke and arose and went forth. That's what Paul's saying here. God's grace made me spring to life by giving me faith and love that is quite the opposite to what my heart was full of before. And what's it all in? The end of verse 14. It's all in Christ Jesus. And that prompts Paul to come out with, Verse 15, here's a statement you can depend on. More than that, he says, here's a statement you should grab hold of. It deserves full acceptance. It's a phrase that means it can be offered to all and you can grab hold of it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Lucky saying, He's taken this blasphemer and this persecutor and this violent, ignorant unbeliever and he's saved him from himself. And he's saved him from the sin that was gripping his heart and he's saved him from the guilt that would have destroyed him forever. Now that's Paul, and he's a very long time ago, isn't he? He was living in the days of the Roman Empire. Did you learn about the Roman Empire in school? Completely different world, foreign to us. Anything to do with us? Oh yes it is. Verse 16. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. So that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul says I'm not just recounting what happened to me. I'm telling it as an example to you. It's an example for us. Now, we are surrounded by examples, aren't we? I see examples on the internet. Do you get this? There's certain websites you look at, and across the bottom or down the side, it keeps on telling you, Nottingham Mother makes millions without working. Do you see that one? They're always coming up. There's an example for us. This mother in Nottingham has made millions of pounds. Don't click on it. I hope you don't. I don't know what happens when you do. Probably put a virus in your computer. Don't click on it. It's not trustworthy. But this is trustworthy. Here is a trustworthy saying. Oh, it's been, it's been proved by the resurrection of Christ. It's proved by this trustworthy book that we have. It's proved by the experience of millions. This is trustworthy. I see other examples on the biography shelves. Do you like biographies? And especially biographies of people who've had remarkable success. Alan Sugar, from East End Barrow Boy to Multimillionaire. That's a good story. Wayne Rooney, from Ordinary Looking Boy in Liverpool to Worldwide Superstar. That's good, isn't it, an example? Well, no, not really, because it's based on extraordinary ability and rare opportunity. So that's not much help to us. But what is this based on? This example, what is it based on? What does verse 16 say it's based on? Verse 16 has a remarkable, unusual phrase that it says it's all based on. Do you see it there? Paul's example is not based on his rare opportunity or his unusual ability. It's based on the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus. Jesus. What a phrase. Do you love that phrase? I hope so. We need that phrase. The unlimited patience of Christ Jesus. Do you think, I've heard the gospel so many times, and I've messed about, and I've put it off so many times, I don't think Jesus could welcome me now. No, don't think like that. He has unlimited patience, so turn to him now. Christian brothers and sisters, do you think like this? I find myself thinking like this. I've sinned that sin again and again and again and again. I'm ashamed to go and ask God for forgiveness again. No. You're right to be ashamed, but don't stop. Go and ask for forgiveness because he has unlimited patience. So get on and ask for forgiveness again. And it's phrased in this open way here, verse 14, that Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. It's phrased in this way which is deliberately open, those who would believe. It's open without small print and exception clauses. It's open in this forward-looking way, those who would believe. Yes, he lived in the Roman Empire, but he's looking forward in this open-ended way that reaches even to us in 2019. And says, Jesus still has unlimited patience. Are you believing him? Well then, you receive eternal life. So no wonder Paul bursts into verse 17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you? Do you burst into that when you hear this gospel? I hope so. We may not be the sort of church that shouts hallelujah, amen, I do, but I hope you're shouting it inside. But it's not here just to provoke praise. Do you remember the aim? Do you remember how this passage all ties together? It's about being motivated by the gospel to fight the good fight. I hope you've been motivated by the gospel. Now let's consider fighting the good fight. So verse 18 to 20, we are motivated to fight the good fight. Now, I am aware that this morning I showed a picture of a soldier on horseback and I talked about Jesus as a warrior and blood getting spattered and now I'm talking about fight the good fight. Have I just got a bit obsessed with fighting today? Well, no, it is here in the passage. Verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. Instruction is a bit of a weak word. It's actually this charge, this command. It's actually a a, a word that, that has this image of a soldier being given his duty by his commanding officer. Paul's his commanding officer. He's received his charge from the king himself, Jesus, and he's passing on the duty to Timothy. And Timothy must go and do his duty. And what is his duty? It's in verse 18. What is his duty? Verse 18, fight the good fight. So it's not just I'm being a bit of a Sunday obsessed with fighting. There it is. What is this fight that the gospel motivates? Well, there are many things this fight involves, but there are three battles given here in this passage. Let's look at the three battles given here. The first is fight for the truth. Now, remember the two halves of the chapter are parallel. And verse 18, go on Timothy, do what you do your duty, is parallel to verse 3. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. We've got the parallel in verse 18. So Timothy is being told, fight for the truth. It's a big theme of the whole letter, actually. If you want to look forward to chapter 6, verse 12, you'll see similar. Chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. The faith. Timothy. This letter called Timothy talks a lot about the faith, which is the body of truth passed from one believer to the next. And Timothy has a lot about fighting to defend the faith, the body of truth handed on from the apostles. Timothy has got to fight to defend the truth. Because there are false teachers around distorting it. Now, remember it's written to Timothy as leader of the church. It's particularly church leaders' responsibility to say, that is error, stop teaching it, this is the truth, embrace it. Why do we have elders in the church? Well, many reasons, but one is to be clear what the truth is and to defend it. And to stop false teaching happening. But it isn't just elders. We've all got some responsibility for this. So if you hear preaching and you think that is a wrong teaching, then have a quiet, respectful word with the preacher. You might find you're wrong. You might find he's wrong. But have a quiet, notice I did, I had some adjectives in there. Quiet, respectful, or they adverbs, I don't know. Word with the preacher. Don't just say, oh, well, I just don't agree with that. If it's preaching God's word, you have to agree. If it's not preaching God's word, there's a problem. So have a quiet word. Now, I say that a little nervously because I'm not trying to encourage a load of nitpicking criticism to come my way. But the preaching of God's word is a serious thing. And we as a church have a responsibility to make sure it happens properly. Timothy is given ample motivation to fight for the truth. Without this grace, our hearts are like the Nile desert where, sorry, the desert where the Nile doesn't reach it. And without this unlimited patience, well, we would have blown our chances long ago. This gospel is too precious to allow it to be distorted. We must fight for the truth. But there's another fight here. Fight for the truth. And then secondly, fight for spiritual life. Timothy has got to fight for spiritual life also. Now, Woodbrook Vale School had an open evening last Wednesday. And in the science rooms, I saw something I had not seen for a long time. Those jars with animals, dead animals in them. I particularly looked at a mouse and you could see its eyes and its teeth and the details of its paws and sorry to any animal lovers who don't like to hear about this poor little mouse lying dead in a jar preserved in some liquid. Carefully preserved but dead. We mustn't fight to preserve the gospel like that. Carefully correct but dead. And so, verse 18, Timothy is told... Fight the good fight, verse 19, holding on to faith and a good conscience. The faith Timothy is to defend is also to be lived. I've said in 1 Timothy you often have this phrase, the faith, which means the belief, the truth. But here it's faith, Timothy's personal trust in God, and he's got to fight to keep that faith. Not just to defend the faith, but to himself keep faith. We're not just to know what the Christian faith is and defend it. We've got to make sure we're actually trusting this God who is faithful. This Jesus who has unlimited patience. Now, my experience is, if I am not regularly seeking God by reading the Bible and by praying to him about my needs, even though my job is to study the Bible, even if I'm doing my job, if I'm not regularly seeking him for myself, my faith withers, And it easily goes down when I go down because something in life I'm finding heart. John Piper, famous preacher in America, he has an article called Fight for Your Life and that all sounds very dramatic and when you read it, you find it's about the very ordinary thing of making time to seek God in the Bible and in prayer. Why does he call it fight for your life? Because it is a fight, isn't it? Because life is busy. And other pressures crowd it out. And other things often seem much more enjoyable. But it's a fight for your life. Because if we don't feed faith, it withers. And we go down as our faith goes down. So Timothy is told, come on, you've got to fight to feed your faith. But spiritual life isn't just feeding your faith, it's also what is paired with it in verse 19. Faith and a good conscience. Fight to keep a good conscience. So many people have come regularly to church and they've sung hymns packed with good doctrine. They have known and they've even spoken up for the faith. And they may be taught in the church and they've been able to explain the doctrine and defend it. And behind the scenes, they're indulging a sin and they're keeping on indulging a sin and they're ignoring their conscience and their conscience is like a burglar alarm in an area where burglar alarms keep going off. They've learnt to just ignore it and to switch off to it and they just keep going, ignoring that conscience. And for a long time, no one knows until one day it's exposed or one day... They just collapse under the inconsistency that their life is. And they become like a shipwreck that you see stuck in the sand at low tide. It was once an impressive looking ship and now it's a rusting hulk. Fight to keep a good conscience. Get your conscience well taught by God's word and then take notice of it. Don't ignore it. I said there are three battles that we're given here to fight. The first is fight for the truth. The second is fight for spiritual life. And the third way of fighting is really not liked by most people. It's that difficult last verse. Verse 20. Some have rejected faith in a good conscience and as so have shipwrecked their faith among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme this is fight for the church's witness to be unpolluted fight for the church's witness to be unpolluted now those who aren't too young can probably remember something called back to basics does it ring a bell? back to basics, this is not a political point being made here, but it was a campaign of the Conservative Party in the 1990s to return to basic moral values, and it's a notorious disaster. Why? Did people out-argue it? Did people show up that in principle it was wrong? No. It was a disaster because of scandal. Because of the people talking about moral values turned out to be having affairs and be completely immoral. And so also the church's witness. The church defending and spreading the gospel is shipwrecked if the people doing it are found to be living inconsistently with that gospel. I must admit I slightly misused the phrase shipwrecked a minute ago when I talked about us being personally shipwrecked because in verse 19 when, when it talks about people shipwrecking their faith it's actually probably meaning this. There are people who've let go of their personal faith, they've stopped trusting, they've stopped keeping their conscience, and they've shipwrecked, literally it is the faith. They've actually made the faith look like a shipwreck, and they've caused damage in the church. Because their lives were inconsistent with the gospel that, well, they were probably teaching it. This is probably referring to teachers going wrong. So what is the church to do about that? The answer is, one that people don't like, put such people out of the church. Put such people out of the church. That's what verse 20 is saying. Uh, if, if if you're in doubt about that, sometime have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is about a man who was dreadfully immoral, being put out of the church and he's described as being handed over to Satan. It's exactly the same language. To those who sin and repent and sin again and repent and sin again and repent or maybe repeatedly cause the church a headache after headache after headache but are humbly sorry, we are to show the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus. I hope we're not in doubt about that. To such people, however dreadful their sin, however much trouble they cause us, to such repentant people who humbly admit it, we are to show the unlimited patience of Christ. But to those who don't repent, to those who pollute the church's witness by claiming to follow Christ, but not being humbly sorry for their sin, however respectable they might look, we are to show that they are not part of the church. How do we show that? I'm not going to go into tonight. I think that's the subject for another time. It's too big a subject to try to cover in passing now. But I'm just making the statement here that we might come back to. We are to show they are not part of the church. Well, why does verse 20 call this such a strange thing? What does verse 20 call it? Just remind yourself again. It calls it handing them over to Satan. Why does it call it such a strange thing? Well, because there is God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. The visible church, the local church, not just the, well, everyone who's a believer belongs to Christ somehow, the visible church that can actually be seen, that this group of believers gathering together is the expression of God's kingdom. Outside it is Satan's kingdom. So when a person is put out of the church or refused membership of the church, it isn't just a disagreement or a, or a technicality, it's to startle and shock the person. It's saying, although we don't know ultimately your heart, you're acting as if you belong to Satan. You're acting as if you're in his hands. Stop dismissing that. Stop acting as if it's just a little thing. Stop presuming it will all be okay in the end. I'm on my way to heaven. Repent. Humble yourself and throw yourself on the unlimited patience of Jesus Christ. It's serious business, not just a technicality or a little disagreement. Now, if we're honest, most Christians agree with this in theory, that the church should do this. But in practice, people will always find a reason why we shouldn't do it. Because it causes trouble and it looks nasty. We must fight for the church's witness to be unpolluted, But remember, even this is what sort of fight. Look back at verse 18. Even this is the good fight. Even this. It doesn't look good when a church does it, often. And people fuss and moan, but it's the good fight. Because it's the fight to keep the church teaching, believing, living and proclaiming the good news. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that he has unlimited patience and that the grace of the Lord pours out abundantly to be offered to everyone to receive it. Let's pray.